This is The Guardian. Today, Liz Truss has promised to get Britain moving. What kind of future is she leading the country into? Getting Britain moving. That was the phrase, the promise, projected above Liz Truss's head as she faced her audience at the Conservative Party conference. She strode onto the stage to the sounds of M People, uh, upbeat pop song from the 90s. It turns out M People themselves weren't very happy about that and have subsequently complained that they, their song was used for that purpose. But I don't think she will care about that. The song's refrain, time to break free, nothing can stop me, is about making a fresh start. And so you can see why she chose it. She's already caused chaos in the economy and among her party. The interest rate set by the Bank of England stands at 2.25%, the highest for 14 years. More rises are coming, though. The Bank of England. Just looking at the pounds, and it is... It's ticking every second and it's, it's ticking lower. Actually, maybe we can show you a chart on the screen because it is quite dramatic. Uh, this early into her leadership, Liz Truss should be basking in the adoration of her party members at their annual conference. It's surely the closest any leader ever gets to feeling like a pop star. But instead, she faced a party that's divided. Several of the most high-profile Tory MPs have been speaking out against her. The problem is, and I noticed this talking to my constituents this weekend, that what they're seeing is money being borrowed in order to fund tax cuts for the better off, whilst they themselves are having to, for example, take on a second shift, another job. For The Guardian's Raphael Baer, who was watching Tress's speech yesterday, it seemed like she was simply trying to stop the whole thing going up in flames. It was incredibly important that this not be a calamitous failure because generally the conference hadn't gone well and the sense that her authority was in ruins and there was a smouldering crater where her prospects of being a successful prime minister once stood really needed to be dispelled a bit. Uh, And so in that sense, obviously it was extremely important, but it was extremely important that she clear actually quite a low bar, which was just get through it. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, is Liz Truss already fighting to save her premiership? Raphael Baer, you're a Guardian columnist and you've been writing extensively about how Liz Truss has been getting on in the four weeks, only four weeks, since she's been Prime Minister. What were the key challenges for her ahead of this speech? The challenge really has to sort of fall into two different categories. One is uh, sort of signalling to the country that she is actually in charge and has some plan because I think having made a huge, by any measure, fiscal intervention, just a financial adventure 
uh, a couple of weeks ago that went obviously very badly wrong. I mean, no one seriously thinks anything other than a calamity occurred when uh, the Chancellor did his mini budget and the markets rejected it, essentially. Clearly, people have understood that. And so she had to sort of speak over the heads of the party to the country to say, look, I am still the prime minister and I have a plan uh, and there is method behind what looks like madness. So that was one that was the main challenge. And then there's the second challenge, which is then addressed to the party itself to say, look, I'm the prime minister you've got. You chose me. You have to stick with me and you have to believe that, you know, I can hold this thing together. So. Those, I'd say, were the two things she had to address. She had to basically persuade, and they're obviously related, but she had to persuade the country uh, that she can do this. And she had to persuade the party not to just start thinking very actively about replacing her with someone else. Liz Truss was making this speech at a time when her economic policies, in particular the idea to cut taxes for the most wealthy in the country, have caused immense trouble The value of the pound fell, interest rates went up and for people trying to get a mortgage, it became more expensive and more difficult. You know, at one point in the past week, 40% of mortgage products were pulled from the market. How did she acknowledge that in the speech? It's notable how little contrition there was for the U-turn on abolishing the 45p tax rates that happened at the beginning of the conference, uh, she has expressed, and in the speech again, expressed in terms of something that was a distraction from what she was trying to do. The fact is that the abolition of the 45p tax rate became a distraction from the major parts of our growth plan. That is why we're no longer proceeding with it. I get it, and I have listened. So she didn't resile from the economics of it at all, uh, nor really from the politics of it. She's still never acknowledged that the reason this isn't a good thing to do is because actually there's a fairness judgment that people make about who's getting the benefits of a tax cut, who's, who the government is giving money to uh, when everyone else is suffering. The only thing that she would just about concede is that it hadn't been handled well from a communications point of view and then people were just sort of talking about it too much and she wanted them to stop. Now, that's not in any meaningful sense of the word uh, an apology, a contrition, humility. It's none of those things. But she did say, I get it, I have listened. She said, I get it, I have listened, which is what Kwasi Kwarteng said also. And this is obviously a formula of words that has been agreed. But she didn't say... What? <laughs> you know, I get it can mean lots of things. Um, it's not, I get it, actually giving millionaires an extra £10,000 uh, while a lot of people are worrying about possibly having their homes repossessed in the coming years and shivering and to, because they have to choose between food or fuel. She didn't say she got that, did she? <laughs> I know what it's like to live somewhere that isn't feeling the benefits of economic growth. The overriding theme of the speech was growth. She said it almost 30 times. What exactly is she talking about when she talks about growth? The obsession with growth struck me as a little bit tin-eared to the extent that I think, you know, at a technical level, what she presumably means is percentage increase in gross domestic products measured over some period of time being higher than it would otherwise have been. I have three priorities for our economy. Growth, 
growth and growth. I mean, the target they've got is a 2.5% trend growth rate in GDP. It's a very big gamble if it doesn't happen, <laughs> because if you know you get to the end of the year or the beginning of next year and people are really suffering and really feeling the pinch very badly and interest rates are still at 5 6% and mortgage repayments are, are bankrupting people left, right and centre and inflation is still very high, even if actually gross domestic product is increasing by a positive sum in, in percentage terms, and people aren't feeling it, you don't get to turn around and say, look, I was right. So the entire policy prospectus gets sort of channeled through this one word. And if people don't really know what it means or what it describes, I think that's politically a problem. I believe in fiscal responsibility. I believe in getting value for the taxpayer. I believe in sound money and a lean state. You know, when she talks about fiscal responsibility and getting value for the taxpayer, does she mean by that that she's possibly planning to cut public spending? Yes. The emphasis on fiscal responsibility has, again, it has a sort of dual function. I mean, part of it, that, that bit, those formulae, when she expresses them in the way she does, are meant for, particularly for consumption of people with Bloomberg and Reuters terminals sitting there deciding whether or not to short the pound. Um, so what she's saying specifically to markets there is, I get that you didn't like me writing blank checks and having no sense of the sort of future revenue when I cut taxes, but it's okay because I do still believe in budget discipline. I'm just going to do have to do gruesome spending cuts instead. So very clearly, the consequence of those statements is spending cuts. This is another round of austerity. It wasn't long into her speech when you started to hear shouting in the crowd and booing. I promised on entering Downing Street to act. Two people stood up and unfurled a banner that read, who voted for this? Let's get them removed. What was that all about? They waved aloft a Greenpeace banner. My understanding is that the, the specific Greenpeace policy grievance relates to anxiety about uh, scrapping of environmental regulations. And there is, of course, uh, you know, full steam ahead on fracking or full frack ahead on fracking. It's not really steam, is it? Um, and the, the framing of the question, who voted for this, you know, is a, a very explicit reference to on what basis does Liz Truss think she can enact a very radical policy agenda when... There's been no general election. Now, later on in my speech, my friends, I'm going to talk about the anti-growth coalition. But I think, I, think, I think they arrived in the hall a bit too early. So Truss responded by quipping that those protesters were the anti-growth coalition. She said they'd arrived early. What does she mean by that? What's the anti-growth coalition? The line about the anti-growth coalition is one that had been briefed in advance. So the journalists at least knew this was coming, that she was going to organise her argument in the speech 
in terms of the Tories, which want to make the economy bigger and share wealth and prosperity for everyone. And then a whole range of enemies who are trying to thwart that. Labour, the Lib Dems, the SNP, the militant unions, the vested interests dressed up as think tanks, the talking heads, the Brexit deniers, Extinction Rebellion, and some of the people we had in the hall earlier. I understand strategically what it is she's trying to do, which is essentially revive quite an effective campaign mechanism that worked in the uh, 26 Brexit referendum, really, which was, you know, that there's this sort of horrible establishment, liberal, metropolitan elite, pro-status quo. Uh, and she she got an inflection of that as when she talked about people who get taxis from their North London townhouses to the BBC to sort of opine on how awful everything is. So there was a bit of that you know, metropolitan liberal elite stuff. Now that feels a bit passe. So it's, you need to sort of reinvent the enemy. From broadcast to podcast, they peddle the same old answers. Podcasters. Oh yeah, well, you Felt know. very personally affronted. Well, yeah, well, we're proving her right there, aren't we? You know, people doing podcasts, sneery North London. I don't even live in North London, but I grew up in North London. So I'm still, you can take the boy out of North London, but you can't take the North London out of the boy. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I mean, look, there's a danger that people just don't understand what it means. Anti-growth coalition, to me, it sounds like a sort of pharmaceutical ointment that you'd apply on a fungal infection or <laughs> some sort of ugly protuberance. It's like, I'll slap a bit of uh, you know, anti-growth coalition on that and see if it goes down in a couple of weeks. Otherwise, come back to me. <laughs> the thing is, if you define your enemies, like the enemy of the government, what you're against is just everyone who happens to disagree with me personally and you don't deliver quite quickly, the antitrust coalition could turn out to be very big. Well, a big theme of her speech was about making the best of Brexit, the opportunities that it's afforded to the country. We're building an economy which makes the most of the huge opportunities Brexit offers. By the end of the year, all EU red tape will be consigned to history. Talk me through her ideas. How did she feel that Brexit has opened opportunities for us? On the Brexit front, it's interesting. What we're seeing now is the refinement of Brexit as a project to really what it was in the Conservative Party, what, what Euroscepticism was to the Conservative Party even 10, 15 years ago before Brexit was even a word, which was about deregulation and sort of the bonfire of red tape and you know that could mean getting rid of workers protections uh, it could mean scrapping environmental regulations all as part of the the ambition to let business and enterprise do what it wants because then they make more money and that grows the economy that's the theory and the, they got to sort of 52 percent in a referendum by broadening it out much more and talking much more about immigration uh, and uh, talking about funding the NHS uh, with money taken from the EU. And and the big promise of Brexit is now dead. They're not even, that's really, that's not going to happen. And we're down to what's been called the sort of Singapore on Thames model of Brexit, which is you have this sort of offshore, deregulated, very financialized, 
you know, give make sure everyone in the city can get however big a bonus they want if they just earn a bit more money, tax cuts for the rich view of of what you know that, that was euroscepticism pure and proper before they had to win a referendum on it uh, and we're back to that and obviously the problem there is it's not actually very popular <laughs> i mean it's it's very popular at a conservative party conference and it's very popular with people who think jacob rees mogg is an icon but there aren't actually that many of those people in the country uh, and nowhere near as many of them as liz trust thinks there are because she happens to spend all her time in the company of those people Well, she talked about cutting red tape, EU red tape, and she also talked about the Rwanda policy. We're also taking decisive action by strengthening our borders and beefing up our border force and expanding the Rwanda scheme. Our brilliant new Home Secretary will be bringing forward legislation to make sure that no European judge can overrule us. Were you surprised at how sort of vociferous she was in saying, I back this Rwanda deportation program. She obviously she had to back that, and I'm sure she does. She backs she does whatever she feels she has to do to sort of stay on as prime minister. Actually, her personal politics are quite liberal on those sorts of issues. I don't think intuitively, starting with a completely blank slate, if she didn't have sort of Suella Braveman and the the sort of the whole UKIPish faction of the Conservative Party that helped get her there. I don't think she would care one way or another about that sort of stuff. But the, the the fact is, she does have to really care about those people. They are the people that do in Tory leaders and prime ministers and always have done. And the backdrop to this speech is that she's got these prominent members of her party doing interviews on the record criticising elements of her policies when she's only just come into power. Can you talk me through some of their oppositions? A very influential figure in all of this is Michael Gove. There are two things that are problematic, two major things that were problematic with the fiscal event. The first is the sheer risk of uh, using borrowed money to fund tax cuts. That is not conservative. Whatever else people might think about him he's good at politics and he came out and said well first of all you know i think it was even on sunday at the beginning of the conference uh he hinted that he didn't sort of like the direction things were taking he has made it clear that he thinks that you know not uprating benefits in line with inflation uh, would be a bad thing to do that positions him more or less as a sort of rallying point for opposition because he is now on the back benches, but he's a very influential, you know, heavyweight person in conservative circles. I have always supported, uh, whether it's pensions, whether it's uh, our welfare system, uh, keeping pace uh, with inflation. It's, uh, it makes sense uh, to do so. so that's, that's I think, I mean, Penny Morden, I think, was first in the cabinet at a Tory conference to say... Well, yeah, I don't think we should necessarily be doing that. <laughs> um, you have Kemi Badenoch, who is in the cabinet, but sort of a little bit team Gove, but not wanting to go, uh, you know, obviously not taking the full sort of Penny Morden position. Essentially, what it comes down to is Liz Truss made a lot of enemies very quickly, having taken the job with not, as many friends as she needed even to begin with. So, you know, just sacking Michael Gove, sacking Grant Shapps. You know, she, she didn't have a majority of MPs thinking she was up for the job 
at the start of the leadership contest. She didn't persuade that many more of them except by offering them jobs. So she got the sort of nodding dog loyalists on board and a lot of serious people weren't persuaded. She then made even more enemies by sort of appointing a cabinet in the most sort of cack-handed, well, sorry, I don't have room for you, even though I'm sure you're actually you'd be a capable minister, but you're just not my friend. So off to the back benches with you kind of way. And they're really angry and they think she's rubbish and can't do the job and will cost them their jobs and possibly send their party into the wilderness. Well, who's she got defending her then? Yeah, the, 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 that, that was a Liz Truss-esque pause I just did there, wasn't it, when you asked me that? And who's she got defending her? Simon Clark is always, you know, um, oh, Jake Berry, the party chair, you know, he's... But you know, he, this, the problem is the people who defend her end up doing more harm than good because they defend her in terms of you know, their understanding of what the ideology is and their understanding of what the ideology is doubles down on all the things that people hate. So Jake Berry going on television and saying... People know that when their bills arrive, they can either cut their consumption or they can get higher salary or higher wages, go out there and get that new job. Sure, it's That's the approach. Well, if you, if you can't heat your home and you haven't got enough money, had you thought about maybe being less poor? I mean, those weren't his exact words. Well, he's... What he said was, you know, go just get that better job. You know, that that's what our, he said that you know, the policy is about encouraging people to do more, you know. And, and um, uh, so, yeah, yes, they are on, on board, you know, and Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know, these people will be on board with what she's trying to do. But when they articulate it in public, it's not going to make her more popular. And that is a big problem. Coming up, Labour are way ahead in the polls. Can Liz Truss change her party's fortune in time for the next general election? Raphael, if you look across the opinion polls, Labour are on an average of 22 points ahead of the Conservatives. And YouGov have put out an an analysis showing that she's less popular than Boris Johnson ever was during his term in office. Do you think Truss has done enough in the speech to reassure Conservatives that she's up to the job? I think she will have done enough that they will sort of go back to Parliament and regroup and think about what on earth to do about the terrible, terrible mess they're in. I think, you know, it is very unusual, I would say almost unprecedented for anyone to go to the place that she has gone to in polling and come back. You know, when you in, in, in mountain climbing, there's a, there's a death zone where there's just the oxygen's too thin. And if you stay in it too long, you die. Your body starts to shut down. Your organs don't work because there's just not enough air. And you can't spend that long in that, that atmosphere. And I, my sense is that it's that, that's, the kind of, that's where the polling is for her and possibly the Tories now. Now, that doesn't mean Labour can't mess it up. And, and narrow it again by doing something stupid or things could happen where it, it narrows again a bit, growth comes back, they claim some vindication. But ultimately what we've seen and I think what are, certainly what experienced conservatives will be observing is she can't do this. So it's not a question of like the policies are wrong, they are wrong or the communication is bad, it's bad. It's like there is a whole suite of capabilities that you need to be an effective prime minister and she doesn't have enough of them. So what's going to happen next then? I mean, Nadine Doris, the former culture secretary, she said that Truss has put on hold a lot of the policies that the government had been working on 
for the last few years and she tweeted, if Liz wants a whole new mandate, she must take it to the country. The next general election is due to happen in 2024. Is it realistic to think that it might be brought earlier? I don't think very many Conservative MPs are in a hurry to have a general election. <laughs> There's no mechanism, really, to have one, Then, you know, because you'd need a vote of no confidence or you need the Prime Minister to, to ask for one, which he's not going to do. And ultimately, look, on one hand, you would think it can't go on like this. Um, but you know, the lesson of recent history is whenever that is said, you know, it very much can and does. Um, so can it just sort of drag on with this zombie government just making an absolute spectacle of itself while everyone thinks, are those polls true? Are Labour really on course for this massive victory? Surely not quite. That's a situation that can actually drag on for quite a long time. Because under the current rule, she has a grace period of a year, doesn't she? Yeah, under the current rules, she has a year, but, you know, rules schmools, you know, they can they can do more or less whatever they want with enough people. If the Conservative Party could engineer a rational outcome here for themselves, they would essentially replace trust without having a contest. They don't ask the members anymore. They would put a sort of a, a serious, broadly stable, capable human being in charge of the party. Uh, they'd either go back to Rishi Sunak or Michael Gove or someone like that. Um and that person would sort of do what Michael Howard did in opposition in 2005 and, and essentially say, I don't expect to win an election. I'm just trying to stop this party from completely sinking from view altogether. But that, that's quite you know, that, that's quite hard to engineer for obvious reasons. That's not how politics works. Raphael, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. That was Raphael Bear. You should check out his columns at theguardian.com. And we've got a live event coming up that you might be interested in as well. The Guardian's Randeep Ramesh and Aditya Chakraborty will be joined by Karis Roberts, who's the executive director of the Institute for Public Policy Research, to talk about the Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng's mini-budget. The event's called Will Trustonomics Wreck the Economy?, It'll be live streamed on the evening of Monday, the 17th of October, and you can book your tickets now at theguardian.com forward slash Guardian Live. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Alex Atak and sound designed by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Elizabeth Cassin. We'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow. 